This episode of No Guitar Is Safe features Matt Scannell from Vertical Horizon and is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player. Play better. Sound better. Hey, welcome to No Guitar Is Safe. I'm excited because today we're going to answer the question, how does someone go from being a seven-year-old kid who doesn't even know that you can put your hand on the fretboard of a guitar and can only play this to, by the time he's in his 20s, becoming an incredible lead guitar player and also incredible band leader, lead singer, and songwriter to the point that by the time he gets his first major label release around 1999, I think it was, this guy and his crew conquer it, man. They break down the wall. They crack the code. They connect with the number one song that many say was the most played song on the radio in the year 2000. It's called Everything You Want. Oh, and it's rising at the back of your mind You never could get it Of course, we're talking about Matt Scannell, the lead guitarist and lead singer and just plain lead-er of Vertical Horizon. But under skin knees and the skid marks Man, Matt and Vertical Horizon, they sold 2 million copies of that, and that was just their first major label release. They've had so many great albums since then, and as you'll find out, a couple of great records before then, too, that they sold basically out of the trunks of their car. Later on in this episode, we're going to hear an earlier track where the whole crowd is singing along to their lyrics and they don't even have a record deal yet. It's a really powerful moment when your band is connecting that hard. I love that stuff. I get chills here in that moment. We'll get to that and so much more. Like, how the heck does his childhood hero and his current day hero, drummer Neil Peart of Rush, end up not only playing on several of his songs, but being his buddy? This dude's got it going on. Most of all, though, I just love Matt because he's just such a killer guitar player with such killer tone and everything he puts down on these records sounds so good. Real quick, gotta thank another Matt, Matt Blackett. I've known for years, almost decades now, maybe 1.8 decades. Dear Matt Blackett from Guitar Player Magazine and other establishments, he hooked us up. He's buddies with Matt Scannell, and, and he said, Man, Matt's got this new record, dude. You gotta get Matt on the show. So that's what we did. I took the copter, landed it on Matt's roof up in the hills of LA. The new record is called The Lost Mile. It's so hip, man. It's got such cool layers, everything from killer synth parts, kind of a tribute to some of the synth bands that Matt has loved all his life, but always, always some killer guitar on there as well.
Yep, a really special episode. Like we're going to close this show at the very end with a really moving song for the troops. And of course, Matt has tons of tour dates coming up. You got to check verticalhorizon.com because more and more dates are going to be announced. Just want to thank again Guitar Player Magazine for sponsoring my podcast. And of course, Zoom for giving me my Zoom recorders that I use. I got like three of these things. I love them. This was the H6 to record this interview today. We're going to hear some cool album tracks as well. Matt has so many killer tube amps. I'll let him tell you what he's playing through. I today will be playing through a Boss Katana 50 little combo. These are great little amps, man. A lot of little tone in there for something that weighs so light that you can just throw into your trunk. Good little amp. On this episode, I'm playing one of Matt's Tyler guitars with a perfectly set up with a slightly floating bridge. I love that guitar. It really plays great. He'll be playing a very special PRS. Real quick shout out to Stan Cody at Fender, who is one of the lead designers on the new Fender pedals. And I tried one of them on my two gigs on the recent weekend in Michigan and Ohio. And I loved it. The Pugilist. That's a kick-ass little distortion box. Lots of sizzle. I dig it. Beautiful knobs, lights up. And wow, Matt is just such a poet. He's the whole deal, man. Shredding guitar player great groove too as you will soon notice he's the whole package and he's also on top of all that a super cool dude so generous with his time i really appreciate him hanging out with us today so yes we're about to get started just remember to say hi at no guitar is safe on facebook better than that write a nice review on itunes better than that subscribe and also please tell a friend Keep it alive till you're 95. Let's fire up the chopper and head on up to Matt's house. Pick hidden there in your hand, right yeah, there. Playing yeah. with your fingers. Yeah, I. Uh... I guess you're holding it with your middle finger. Yes, I. For years, I tried to. Um, I tried to get to the place where I was comfortable holding the pick in my hand and yet using my fingers. And and now I find myself a lot of times just yeah. using my fingers. And then occasionally using the pick. Less and less of a picker, huh? Or- well, no. I mean, it's still the main, probably the main way I, I, I play the guitar is, is with the pick. But when I'm soloing or if I'm playing some melodies, I, I like the, I guess I, I guess I like to switch. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like Richie right, Kotzen, right. like who's just like done. He's like, I'm not, I hate the pick. He's, a, he's anti-pick. Right. I'm not anti, <laughs> I'm pro-pick, but um, mm. 
but yeah, I, I've, I, I use it maybe, a, I switch between, you know, the two for, for when I'm playing solos and stuff. Um, but for me, the, the interesting thing, the moment, you know, for years I could only play live with a pick. I, I couldn't, you know, in a live situation, I couldn't switch between the two. And I was, you know, when I'd go home, I'd be practicing with my fingers and I'd want to be at that place where I, I felt comfortable with my fingers. And then at some point, at some gig, I, I wasn't thinking about anything. I was liking what I was playing. And then I noticed that I was using my fingers. Which you is can great. just tell that you're super comfortable with your fingers just by looking at you. Like, you ever see a great baseball player before they even step up to the plate? You just know they know how to swing that bat. Like, oh, I just cool. look at your hands, the way you hold it, and you got it just stashed in your middle finger there. Like, yeah. it ain't no thing. <laughs> I don't know yeah. where I got this from. I, yeah. Someone, I think, I, I'm sure I saw someone doing it. But yeah, it just sort of cradles there in, in my, middle, my middle finger, the little nook And there. I've never been... Ever, I don't think I've ever commented on someone's fingers before, but you have long fingers. I have like, long fingers. Yes, I do. I stretch them every night. I'm trying to get them out to seven or eight inches, but they're only like four. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I always tell students too, or people like they think like, "Oh man, but my hands are so short. Otherwise, I'd be a better guitar player or something." Or, well, or you know, one of the best guitar players I ever played with was in college. I played bass actually in this band. Because I wanted to yeah. be near this guitar player so much. And he had the shortest fingers. He had the smallest hands. And he was just the most ripping guitar player. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with it, really. Yeah, I don't think it does either. Yeah. That was exactly my point. But, yeah. but you look like you got guitar player hands. So I've done it for a while. So hopefully <laughs> the hands know what they're doing, at least to some extent. And this room we're in, I just got to say, for anyone who's not here, it's like, first of all, it's a beautiful house up here oh. in the hills Thank of Los you. Angeles. And we got the best day you know how it is in la after yeah. it rains for a couple days untoppable yeah the weather the clarity you're looking over the valley here yeah it's lush and then i walk in your house and you got a good feng shui thing going on here matt like, oh thank you jude you know you don't have like you're definitely not a pack rat or anything you got a beautiful open furniture and, yeah. and but it's like a lot of space i'm like where yeah. are we where are we gonna do today's interview yeah then we turn a corner into what i would describe as a second living room or something <laughs> yeah and holy shit, <laughs> I think you might give Carl Verheyen a run for his money. Oh, that's what now, I've been going for. All his stuff is not in his house necessarily. It's more in his storage area. Right. In a secret location that I can't disclose. Right. But right. I'm looking at Sir Heads divided by 13 heads. You're running through like a Marshall and a, right now it looks like you're going through a divided by 13. Yeah. So the divided by 13 JJN 5100, which is a great sort of, it's a Marshall style master volume amp. Nuts. And then behind you, there's... Couple AC thirties, couple matchless. I'm looking at two basemen. That's right, I said basemen. Basemen, yes. <laughs> and all these great cabinets. So that cabinet you're running through is like a '70s Marshall or something. Yeah, actually, this so um, this is this is not the cabinet I'm running through. I'm actually running through this Port City oh, right, right, right. over here in the corner, um, which has uh, uh, greenbacks in it. And then, uh, but this cabinet, yeah, is sort of a recent acquisition. The feeling you get as a guitar player, and I'm definitely going to put some pictures up here if cool. you will be so uh, willing. Yeah, 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 of course. When the guitar player walks into this little room, there's little Fender combos, other Marshall head. And then I'm seriously, on my left here is about, I'm going to try to guess this accurately, about 100 <laughs> pedals. I don't know if it's that many. Maybe, maybe someone, I'm going to put this photo up. Somebody count them for us and tell them how many there are. <laughs> Enough pedals. The, the, the thing is, though, they all get used. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's not having stuff just to have stuff. No, of course. Although that is a lot of stuff, to be fair. And then you have the beautiful Pro Tools rig or whatever whatever you do for us. Yeah, Pro Tools. Yeah. Um, 
and then uh, just some. I have I have a few channels that I you know I, I use this space to make the Vertical Horizon records, and I work on some other stuff here as well. Really, it is just about me. I mean, this is my treehouse, you know, and uh, and so I I basically leave everything set up. It's just ready to go. I have a vocal booth, which is a glorified closet, and I have a beautiful. Uh, Telefunken 251 in there that I sing into um, and just really you know a few great chains um, 1084 uh, distressors some old um, APIs and stuff and it's it's just good to have good stuff and just have what you need you know yeah I love it thanks man, man. yeah <laughs> I'm a huge amp fan obviously you know it's been wonderful I'm actually using the new uh, line 6 helix effects box that I just recently got and I've been fascinated to dive into helix as a thing you know with the impulse responses that they sort of allow you to import into the unit and and I love that it's it's really interesting now to be at a place with these boxes where you can kind of you know whether it be Kemper or or line six or any of these other things that all everybody's using um, I think we're at a place now where it's feasible to use other stuff you know I'm not necessarily old tube amps but I oh, yeah. I love the real thing I just I just absolutely do well when I think of you I definitely when I think of like a modern I mean the term modern rock doesn't sound modern anymore that's like a 90s term yeah. or something but when I think of a modern rock player man I really think of you with all oh, I man. love your playing your layers and your thank you so much but then again so yeah I will always be totally wondering what are you using yeah well like for example like on the solo and lighthouse yeah on that new song yeah the new, new song yeah the new so the new record's called the lost mile and that is a strat it's a danicaster strat and actually um my friend michael mcwarder from mojo tone had sent me out a set of their uh hum canceling pickups and i'm fascinated with hum canceling single coils that kind of get it you know what i mean yeah, yeah. um and these were inspiring pickups to play Um, I've I've fallen away from strats in general, which is sort of a long story. Um, that tune in particular is the neck pickup on on a, a really good Danacaster strat, and I was it was interesting because the. Um, um, That's funky. Yeah, baby. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, you're getting such great sound right there. You got your Ernie Ball volume pedal. You just got the pick stash because you're back to the fingers again. Yeah, and you're playing a PRS. Matt Scannell, very tell us about that very special. Okay, guitar. yeah. So this is um, <laughs> this is a PRS guitar that uh, they just made for me recently. It's a single cutaway with a sort of black, just regular old black paint on the top, a natural mahogany back and sides, which I love. That sort of uh, duo jet kind of look. Um, yeah, it's gorgeous. And then it's got two um, of the, 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 whatever, the low, whatever they call it, 5815, 58115 or something, the low wind pickups, humbuckers. But the key for this guitar for me is this great Paizo bridge that they have. And yeah. so much of our set is about sort of 
finding the balance between the singer-songwriter guy inside of me that sort of writes a song like Best I Ever Had on the acoustic, and then the the, the guy, you know, who, who wants to rock out and, you know, wants to play rock tunes. Um, and, and I love having both of those things in one guitar. Yeah, they do that so well. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really great thing. I, it's actually, uh, the first time I saw it was Alex Lifeson on the Test for Echo tour mm-hmm. uh, when Rush played uh, that tour. I don't recall what year it was exactly, but he was playing a PRS. And I remember, he was he had this killer electric tone and then this acoustic like as he was playing arpeggios the acoustic was speaking out through it and it was like there was another guitar player on stage and it's just for me you know as we the more we can bring to the table in a live situation the better you know it's like if if you can be if you can be greater than or sound like more than uh you know the number of guys you are then it's it's a victory you know so both the both both myself and and uh, the other guitar player in our band use the piezo thing as well so it it sort of sounds like there are four guitar players on stage at points that's awesome you get yeah. that huge three-dimensional sound yeah I, i've always loved to hear like two amps at once or yeah an amp in the other room like just creating a stereo field like yeah never want to be just hearing a mono speaker right in my face and that's it yeah yeah i'm totally with you on that in fact most of the time when i work here i monitor through um i have some krk v8s here uh, or um oftentimes i use grado headphones um which are these amazing headphones made in brooklyn and uh, it's nice to just have a little bit of wash a little bit of ambience and i tend to mic my cabinets just with a great 57 that i found uh and i go into an api um it's like the 312 the api 312 um and so it's a super simple chain but it's nice to have a little bit of ambience i use echo boy all the time and got some great reverbs those are great plugs just to just to have a little bit of something going on so you don't just feel it can feel a little clinical when it's just mono just to like go back to what we were saying real quickly about Lighthouse, like what what amp was that that you were plugged into for that? It's a good question. I think that amp was the um, the JR the uh, the uh, J- JRT. Uh, 915 divided by 13 head right there. Damn, that's a lot of letters and characters and it numbers. It is. So Fred, <laughs> so Fred is an amazing dude and and it's absolutely lovely the way he names his amps. He names his amps after players. The guys yeah. who have the idea, they get their initials as the as the name of the amp, which is lovely and, you know, oh, true. Cool. Yeah, true to who he is. He's a super great guy. So yeah, so but the, but it does making the it does make rather the 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 names a little bit tough to memorize. But essentially that um, that red amp is a um it's it's sort of a an evolution of an old gibson amp i think maybe the ga20 i don't recall i don't really know my old gibsons but it's switchable between el84s and 6v6s in the output section it's a really simple tone and volume and cut you know not not dissimilar to an old ac30 or maybe an ac10 essentially the matchless sort of architecture that we've come to understand you know having a little bit of a little bit of tone options the click tone option and a cut control as well and i just love it on the el84 setting a big revelation for me too is embarrassing to say but i maybe other people out there will have, have had the same experience for so long you know there are two inputs on most amps high high input you know high input and low input and for so long i was like why would anyone ever plug into the low input i mean we want the high input we want more at all (laughs) times and um 
And over the past however many, five, ten years, I guess, I've not that long, five, five years, I've been exper- experimenting with these low input. And and you wind up sort of getting a different tonality out of the amplifier. Man, well, that's the beauty of guitar. Every yeah. day you can do something like you overlook for decades yeah, totally. or something, and then whoa, yeah, something new. Absolutely, yeah. Now speaking of layering, yeah, I just love your layering. Let's listen to one more song before you share your entire life history with us. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this epic jam, True Illusion. Oh, uh, great. it just builds up. It's such a beautiful tune, and then you start bringing these layers as you have on many songs throughout your career. Like a desperate hope. Tell me stories, show me wonder Wrapped in the light of the everlasting hour Like falling snowflakes and fading sunlight We are alive, we are so, so this song is interesting. I've been, I've been, I've been really influenced by the band Elbow um, and Guy Garvey's lyrics and, and vocal performances. Um, I'm a huge uh, Peter Gabriel fan. It's a memory. This melody. You know, so much of what I do comes back to my love for Peter Gabriel. Um, also, I'm in. I'm a massive David Gilmore and Pink Floyd fan, and so years ago, yeah, right. I mean, so years ago, we did. Uh, we used to do "Comfortably Numb" in the middle of one of our songs, a song, a song called "We Are," and it was just so fun and so epic to play, just to be able to play that song and then to be able to solo over those changes. Um, and so when I did, when I was writing True Illusion, I really made a, a conscious effort to try to have a moment that could be, you know one-tenth of the glory of Comfortably Numb. Awesome. What did you use for track? What was the signal chain for that solo? Yeah, so that solo was um, this uh, 1968 small box Marshall Plexi. That's going in my car after this. <laughs> it's a, I mean, the copter. It's a great, yeah, the copter. I'm sure you can fit it on there. It was cool how you landed on the roof, by the way. That was bold. Yeah, people, you know, President Trump was here yesterday with all those Ospreys and like yeah. three or four giant military copters. People were like, oh, Jude's in town with Jude. his podcast. <laughs> Like, no, that's a presidential thing. Yeah, so it's a small box, um, 50 watt Plexi from 68. I use that over there, that 1960 Gibson It's a great guitar. Um, there's a Bigsby on it too, which I just find to be really inspiring. I love guitars with Bigsby's. Um, yeah. You know, they just sort of can get you into a, a place where you're a little bit more creative or something. I don't know, that shimmer that you can get on the thing. And then uh, I was playing a, an old fuzz face pedal uh, in, you know, into, the, into the Plexi, and it was just that simple. The delays are uh, from Echo Boy, the plug-in. Um, and then uh, one of the waves reverbs, I think. Well, cool. Now, we've got a lot of music to check out here. You've done so much shit in your young life. <laughs> I call you young because I think we're probably 
about the same age. Yeah, I'm 48. I'm 48. So I'm not sure that I'm young anymore. I'm definitely not old. <laughs> but uh, but it's a good... Actually, it's just a really great time. I mean, it's a great time. I'm really just happy. I'm really happy in my life right now. It's funny to even say that. For so many years, you know, as a songwriter, we tap into the bittersweet moments, the darker moments to try to sort of make yourself feel better. And, and, and that's what I've known forever as a writer. But I'm I'm in a good place right now. I'm happy, mostly because you're here. <laughs> why, why, you don't need to flatter me. <laughs> I won't get you anywhere because I've got nothing to give you other than I'm so thankful that you're on the show today. Oh man, my pleasure. Now, where did you grow up, and uh, when did you first get into music? Um, so I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, in the middle of the state. My mom and dad uh, were singers in college, in like a cappella groups, and my dad sort of as I think a lot of people did back in the day, back in you know the 60s and 50s, had a nylon string acoustic guitar that he would play, an old Goya, actually. Um, so I grew up with this guitar standing in the corner, and I was always fascinated by it. Eventually, I started picking it up, and my mom and dad have a picture of me with the guitar sitting on my lap, almost kind of like Jeff Healy style. Um, and I didn't know that you could, because my dad didn't play it very often, or at least I don't recall him playing it very often. I didn't know that you would fret the notes. I Isn't thought that so funny? The human's instinct is yeah. to hold it flat. Yeah. Like if someone doesn't have the gift of sight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Just, they never think about holding it in this weird, awkward manner. They just yeah. put, it, uh, put it down. And I, and I thought that you... It, I didn't know that you actually fretted notes, so I thought it was like a harp. And I remember the first song I ever learned was uh, My Best Friend's Girlfriend. Yep, it's just whatever it took, man. Shows that you had an ear for melody and stuff. You know, well, I mean, that shows up early. You know, yeah. And I, I started taking lessons. I think I really started playing around seven years old, and then I started taking lessons when I was thirteen, and then it was just all over. Now, back up for a second, because you strike me as a guy that is a finisher. Like you get shit done and realize visions. And then yes. I think I heard somewhere that your brother's a surgeon. Yeah. My brother but is another type of person you want to be a finisher. You don't want yes. them to be half-assed <laughs> or leave projects undone when they start something. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You don't want him to, to go off and have lunch and leave you on the table. <laughs> yeah. He's a near nose and throat surgeon. It's really pretty incredible. So, did you learn from your parents? Were they like finishers, if, if to use that word? I yeah. Know. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. What did they do? My So my dad um, uh, took over the family business, which was an electrical wholesale supply company in, in, in the middle of Worcester. And to his credit, you know, when I when I came to them, to both their credit, when I came to them and said, you know, they they... They put me through Deerfield Academy, which is this incredible. Uh, it was at the time all boys boarding school. Um, I applied to, and they put me through college at Georgetown University. Um, Damn, you're no slouch. Well, incredibly support. Really, it was just because my family was really supportive, and they wanted me to have a really good education. Um, after all this time, and after all this money invested, when I came to them and said, "You know what? I'm gonna, I'm going to try to become a professional musician." their reaction as opposed to being, you know, how dare you after all this money that we've spent on you uh, was how can we help? We want to help you do this. And years before that, I had been talking to my dad about what I might do for a career. And I had brought up the possibility of taking over this, the family business. And what did you study at Georgetown? I studied psychology. Um, and I, uh, I worked in an adult daycare center with Alzheimer's patients when I graduated. And then, uh, at night I'd play gigs. Um, and it was sort of the, 
you know, I was trying to choose at that point, which one sort of, uh, which path I was going to try to walk down. And, and it was clear to me that my heart and my whole life had been passionate and dedicated to the guitar and to, to songwriting. But when I made that call, they were, they were, they were supportive. And so I felt like I had this, even though I didn't ever want to use it, but I had this safety net of a family that would sort of, if I needed to sort of be there for me, which also drove me harder to never need that safety net, you know? Well, I think, I think a guy like you, you know, now I'm flattering you, but I think you would be successful in whatever industry you apply yourself, but let's go back a little ways. So you grabbed a guitar and then what was the first real riff? Like, do you yeah. remember, like, what, what did you start rocking out on? Well, the were... first riff was the sort of de facto Stairway to Heaven. Um, and, I've um, heard of that song. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I remember, so my, my cousin Aiden had a uh, Black Les Paul custom. And uh, he brought it to my grandmother's house and showed mm. it to me. And I thought, man, that is by far the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I, I remember asking someone to take a picture of me playing the guitar and I played the most crazy chord that I knew as I was doing, because, you know, I looked in Guitar Player Magazine and I'd see Alan, yeah. Alan Holdsworth or somebody with their fingers <laughs> stretching 17 frets. And, uh, but so I would, ju- I did the craziest chord that I could think of and that was that, you know, fifth position, like, whatever yeah. that is, a minor chord, right? Yeah. But I would keep that. I kept that picture of me playing this Les Paul for in my wallet for ten years or something like that. But you know, my fa- my favorite band throughout all that time was was Rush, um, and their tunes were very hard to learn. But I do remember learning uh, Limelight for the first time, and obviously that was that was way down the road. You know. The, um, Way after Stairway to Heaven. Dude, I'm a Rush fan too. Oh, awesome. I mean, I've really gotten more into bands that are more of an R&B or funk kind of yeah. groove. But True. when I was a teenager, Rush was one of my bands. Yeah. And I saw Limelight at the Cal Expo Amphitheater in Sacramento. It was one of the best moments. The way they timed it, because that song builds. Yes. And then the smoke came out. And then oh, the yeah, the crazy drum solo. fills start building up. The Neil Peart's crate. And oh, then, are you thinking? Are you thinking Xanadu? Um, oh no! You know what? That whole album. I mean, you know what? I am actually mixing it up. It was Witch Hunt. Oh, Witch Hunt! Dun, sure. Dun, <laughs> yeah. Dun, dun. Yeah. 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 Killer. But both those. Those are like two of my favorite songs in that album, which is Moving Pictures. Yeah, Moving Pictures uh, is dude, classic. I was right there. And then uh, let's just jump ahead for a second. Yeah. What What's up with how are you and Neil Pert friends? He's on your record yeah three songs with neil pert yeah what the fuck insane absolutely insane at this point he's actually played on five songs on two different a total of five songs on two different records okay let's hear one right now what should i play there's a tune on echoes Mm -hmm. from the underground called instamatic yeah yeah. and it's basically like the most amazing master class in drumming and i cannot believe that he did it on my song it's ridiculous now you're gonna run now you're gonna run now you're gonna run
were you there with him? Or? Oh yeah, there's actually there's a video um, online on our YouTube channel. Um, so when Rush had been working on their, I guess their prior, maybe the Snakes and Arrows uh, uh, record, um, Neil had um, their producer actually be in the room with him and sort of just to have a little bit of uh, uh, interpersonal, you know, interaction or, you know, um, and actually Bouge, what they call him Bouge, was kind of not conducting him, but kind of, you know, Neil was going in with a much less, let's say less over-prepared uh, uh, than, than, you know, than he normally yeah. would on these tunes. And so he wanted to be a little bit freer as he was tracking them. So Bouge would be in there and kind of guiding him through the arrangement that they had sort of agreed upon. And when we did this song, Neil asked me to do the same thing. So, um, I was in there with headphones on and kind of just pointing at things and getting <laughs> animated and crazy. Yeah. And man, it was just this totally joyous thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and it goes back to, I, I met him, uh, my girlfriend, one of her best friends, this is a crazy story, owns a BMW deal dealership in Texas. And Neil was buying a car from him and trading another car to him. In Texas? In Texas. It's just a crazy story. So it's anyways, like I don't even think these guys ever leave Canada except to do shows. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Well, <laughs> well Neil lives lives here now. See, I don't know these things. Yeah, so, um, so, so uh, my girlfriend's friend needed pictures of Neil's car. So we were more than happy to go over and take pictures of Neil's car. So I met Neil that day and we didn't really talk about music. We talked about, I was wearing a watch that he liked and, and uh, that he had used to have. I loved his car. So we, we were talking about this. He had this Porsche Speedster that I thought was really special. Anyways, we just really nerded out on other things. Right. Um, and as I was trying to think of what to say, to him about how much his music had meant to me over the years, he leaned in to me and said, hey man, I'm a huge fan of your work. Was Which, he, did he know that Vertical Horizons mastermind was going to be walking in his driveway to take pictures of his car? <laughs> yeah, he did actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, and, uh, and so we hmm. slowly began this friendship and then years and years later, um, we talked about writing a song together so we wrote a song uh, a song called Even Now which is on uh, the Echoes from the Underground record yeah. and um, well I and I said to him you know if we write a song together you're gonna have to play drums on it and he said well nobody in this you know he's this big voice nobody else can play drums on that song and um, that song is mine which is great it's great <laughs> so we did we did the whole thing and his tech gump came down and from from Canada uh, the people out of DW drums were super supportive they actually built him a kit so he could have a kit here but the impetus of that kit was to make sure that he had the drums he wanted for our recording wow. session, which is just crazy. Dude, you've had so many successes, but that has to be like just a pinch yourself moment. Like you're just... Yeah. For me, the most beautiful thing about all that was when he went from being the guy whose music meant so much to me and the drummer who I thought was the greatest drummer ever to the guy who was my friend. Damn, you sound like Lukather talking about Ringo. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Speaking of drummers. Yeah. I mean, the friendship supersedes now. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Luke, I mean, I've, I've met him a few times. Uh, we've, you know, we've talked 
Uh, we've talked a lot. He's a funny, funny dude. And I have so much love for that guy. And I love his guitar playing and I love that band. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Luke is a legend. Yeah, man. he's out there doing it. Otherwise, I'd say we'd go over and crash his yeah. house. It's not just a couple blocks away, I think. <laughs> and, yeah, the Alex Lifeson, yeah, that's solo on Limelight. It's one of the oh. great Rush solos now. And you're kind of friends with Alex, too, huh? Yeah. So He's nutty. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm friendly with, with yeah. all of them. I actually met... Alex first because uh, our A&R guy at RCA Records this guy named David Bendeth uh, who's gone on to have great success as a, as a producer and mixer with other bands he grew up in Toronto and um, knew Alex just from the scene there and when we were looking for a producer for everything you want we asked Alex if he would do it and he was busy wasn't, wasn't able to, to do it at that time but when we played a gig up there Alex came out to the gig and he was so supportive and so lovely um and i was always you know a little bit nervous around alex which is ironic because he's just the most down to earth and and funny guy he's one of the funniest people i've ever met in my life so so much of what i do on the guitar uh is in some ways directly inspired by his playing you know the voicings the arpeggios when he uh like um on limelight you know but that all the oh, the open strings, the not being afraid of of more. It's almost more of a keyboard style of uh, you know, like like there's some dissonance, yeah. some second intervals in a lot of his voicings. Like who who would do what's this a G sharp sus? Who would do that there? I mean that's yeah. genius. The last song of that chord is a sus chord. Like, yeah. no, I would I never, know. I would never do that. So I learned all this stuff from him, and I, I, I took a lot of that to this moment where I met him, and um, now, which is just so lovely. Again, you know, he's just this guy that I know who happens to be one of my heroes. You know, he's, he's yeah. terrific. Yeah, you, you really take that Alex Lifeson approach to. Like in terms of using open strings yeah. and like even a, like on We Are, I think like on the second verse or something like. Yeah, so there's we. Um, it's actually a, a, a capo uh, bit on the record. See, yeah, capos are just so important, and oh, yeah. very few rock players use them. Oh no, I love a capo. I love a capo. I'm 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 absolutely. There's no shame in a capo. Um, the, you know, the, again, I guess if you're coming from yeah. a place where you want to be able to use open strings, um, yeah. well, then, that's okay, dude. I'm interrupting you, but do it. <laughs> capos. I've been. You know, I do a little bit of teaching, three mm-hmm. hours a week nowadays at Great. MI. And uh, I tell students about. It. I'm like, this is not a cheater. This is not a. This is an open string generator. Absolutely, open strings are freaking cool. They're very and it'll cool. Give you open strings anywhere you want them. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I mean, honestly, it's interesting when you were saying you were saying earlier that the like yeah. the, you were interested maybe in some of the alternate tunings that I use. I actually don't use alternate tunings. I the only thing I do is drop the the low E string to D on occasion, um, but everything else is is basically standard tuning, just uh, down a half step. Um, right. 
so it might be the capos. I also feel like I'm trying to find different shapes that maybe allow me to have some of the dissonance or some of the slightly more complex voicings that you'd hear when you when you hear an open right. tune guitar, you know. Yeah. But the thing on We Are is uh And the, the delay is also key, that having that yep. in there is a good thing. Dotted eighth delay. Yeah. I still can't believe they still make delay pedals that have one tap setting, but they don't have dotted eighth. Yeah. If any manufacturers listening there, yeah. if anyone's going to tap, <laughs> we also need a dotted eighth. Give us both. <laughs> Please. So you're a kid and you're into Rush. Rush is your, Rush is your jam. Yeah, but. I mean, I loved Rush. I loved uh, Yes. I loved... I loved Asia. I loved uh, the Cars, Boston, uh, but I also loved James Taylor and the Beatles and um, you know Simon and Garfunkel. I'm and starting the, to see it because you yeah. got the prog and the the future mixed with the with the uh, singable. And well, the pop and that and was the, the thing about James Taylor. Uh, you know, I learned how to sing harmony vocals. I really learned how to sing by listening to James Taylor, which was something that I had to almost allow myself to evolve away from because I, I sounded like I was trying to sound like James Taylor on our very earliest records. We did a record called There and Back Again and a record called Running on Ice. There were these independent records. And, and if you listen to those records now, it does sound like a guy who's trying to find his voice and was listening to an awful lot of James Taylor. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with that and he's one of the all-time greats, but I just needed to find my own sound. You know what I mean? It seems like your early days were heavily acoustic. Yes. You had acoustic guitar in your hand a lot of the times. Yeah, it was basically an acoustic duo, uh, and we played, uh, you know, we traveled all over the place. That was you and Keith Kane? Yeah, Keith Kane played in a, uh, I traveled in in an old Ford Explorer of mine or in his Jeep Cherokee, and we went all over the country. Now, Um, is this, I know we're jumping ahead, but, well, you're in college, is that when you really start gigging, or? Yeah, so we started the band in 91, and played all over the place for... I guess it wasn't until around 1996. Even at a college level, that's a lot of success where you're being able to tour and people are obviously loving the music. And Well, so we graduated in 92. So the band was really not starting to come together until after we graduated. So it, it is fortunate that I wasn't trying to keep my studies up and make and make the make the right. band happen. Uh so it wasn't until after that that we we really went all in. And then yeah, it was it was just blinding amounts of work and endless hours of driving to endless gigs all around uh you know, especially the 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 sort of mid-Atlantic region and down to like uh through Tennessee into and then all the way down to Texas. And we had toured uh, there was a band called Jacko Pierce who had given uh, you know, given us some great opening slots in Texas which uh, enabled us to sort of grow that you know, market as a, a, you know, market for, I I always hate saying market, but you know, grow that state for us. And it was really cool because they were super passionate and the Carolinas were unbelievable. You know, North and South Carolina were amazing. Yeah. uh, You mentioned you used to play at Ziggy's a lot, huh? Yeah. I used to play there when my first touring band a lot in the late nineties, JGB. And what a ride. That's like, that's it's crazy. a club, but it kind of feels like a chicken shack or something. Well, it certainly was. Yeah, it it, it was a tent, effectively, yeah. right? Um, and when we recorded our live record, which is called Live Stages, we had two nights there, and the first night was a you know like a hurricane level 
rain, yeah. torrential rains, and the power grid went out all over Winston Salem. Right, and um, and and so everywhere else. Power was gone except for Ziggy's. I know Ziggy's. It's like in the city, but it's down a little street, half yeah. a block, and it feels like it's in the sticks. Yeah. Well, and Michael McWhorter from Mojo Tone, the guy yeah. I mentioned earlier with the pickups, he worked at a, at a guitar. Remember the music store that was right next yeah, to Ziggy's? Yeah, right across the street. So Michael probably was there when you went in and tried to get a cable at the last minute. Um, That's so funny. I did buy a cable there one day. There you go. So it was perfect. I do remember, you know, as, as Ziggy's would start to show up on the schedule, we'd think, well, just about then we'll probably need some cables and some capos. And so we'd always stop in at that music store. Uh, but Ziggy's was great. And now the, the, the venue actually still exists, but yeah. it's uh, somewhere else in, in Winston. So oh, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't it rowdy in there? Like some some oh, yeah. venues just have an energy. Like crowds oh, yeah. would just get nutty in there. People. Well, and I think also too that was part of that North Carolina thing. I mean, they were yeah. just passionate live music supporters. That's great. So you recorded live there and- in the rain, in the crazy <laughs> rain, and actually we used every take from that evening, that night, except for, uh, I think, one song that was from the following night. And I just remember, you know, there was a tent, the roof was a tent, and there were a couple holes in it. And I remember seeing a girl right in front of me just standing there with this huge smile on her face and rain just dripping down <laughs> onto her head. You know, she it was almost like she was outside. It was great. It was it was kind of a magical night. That can be sketchy when those drips are going on the stage. I know. Though. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Um, so I was looking for that record, but it's not on spot. Spotify, maybe is it on iTunes or is it on Spotify? It will be on Spotify. Those some of the, some of those old records yeah. we had a little bit of uh, challenge. There's some challenges with those old records, but the, it will be it, it will be up yeah. there. Licensing wise, or like, yeah, just yeah, just yeah, stuff. You're like yeah, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel you, man. But from those early records, what's one of your favorite riffs? Like, you can you show me something or? Um, I never know if people like for me. I'm like, I love this riff from that band. I love this. Like I always have a, these things in my mind that I used to do. Yeah. Well, you know, you were talking about Alex Lifeson. Um, there's a song called Fragments, um, and I, one of my biggest revelations was adding the nine to an E major chord. Yep. And so there's a tune called Fragments, and, and basically I just use that into an F sharp major with the. So one of my favorite riffs from that time period was this. It's really simple, but it's... Um and then the chorus... Um I was gonna try to get you to sing, but I didn't even have to ask. Oh no, I, yeah, I don't mind. That's great. You're a great singer, man. You're trying to you're trying to front somewhere, like saying that you weren't a singer. You're a great singer. Man. Well, thanks. I, I I really appreciate that. I that's been the hardest thing is to learn how to sing. Um, and I, I I'm not a natural singer, so I have a a vocal coach, a guy named Dave Stroud, who really really has helped me over the years. I have to diligently warm up and warm down every time I sing. So today, if there is singing, you know, please everyone be kind. But <laughs> disclaimer. Right. Yeah, no, you know, yeah, it's it interesting. I was listening to the Richie Kotzen podcast and like I just love his voice. It's so 
he sounds like such a natural singer. You know, he has that thing, and I just absolutely adore right. it. And I've had I've had to find that. I've had to find that yeah. for myself. You know, where my voice naturally lays. And ultimately, it's interesting because my whole gig essentially is dependent upon songs that I can sing. And so, as yeah. much as I adore the guitar, just for the sake of guitar, I have had to because you know when I was when I was growing up, um, you know there were there were Guitar players like Eddie Van Halen, Steve Vai, Alex Lifeson, um, Eric Johnson, uh, you know, who I loved and adored and wanted to emulate and play like Joe Satriani, Paul Gilbert, um, you know, so many guys. And I realized that I didn't maybe have that. I didn't have that level of proficiency. Um, and so it was something, you know, okay, well, you can do that all this, you know, you can spend the rest of your life trying to be able to play Cliffs of Dover, um, and you should, maybe, but it might be better for you to learn how to sing and write some songs. And I'm really glad that I did because that has been this, the, the thing. The, the, the songs that I've written have been the, the, the things that have enabled me to continue to make music for a living. And I'm just so grateful yeah. for that. Oh, absolutely, man. You, you did it, man. You, yeah, thanks. You cracked it. You broke that final wall. Thank you. Which yeah. is to build a career off your songwriting and your sound. Yeah. But the first part was a little challenging. Like, how did you... I mean, just, it sounds like you were, first of all, you were very successful already playing Ziggy's two nights and everything. That's a great club, even though we're talking about like as a tent, but that's a fat venue, great yeah. venue. Yeah. How did you get the attention of RCA and actually convert it to the next level and getting a record deal to well, set the stage for your big hit singles? Yeah. So, so that was a, um, it was, it was, it was a fairly calculated thing on our part. First of all, we, we had sold about 70,000 units effectively on the side of the stage which is a lot. You That's know? it, totally a lot. So, you do know, they make you prove that? Like, how do you prove yeah, you so we sound Yeah, so we sound scanned. We, we, we trying to think of exact. I think it was our manufacturer, Crystal Clear Sound at the time. So yeah, if you're not doing that, I would encourage you to because it, it can add up over time and become part of a picture that maybe means something to you know someone else who might be interested in trying to further your career so yeah 70,000 yeah. off the side of the stage that's a lot of CDs well and, the, and without any other help and so at that time a few of the labels came and became well actually I should say we did live stages and when you listen to that, that record when you listen to that record the first song is a song called the man who would be Santa that I wrote for my dad um, but very purposefully we started the record off. It was so bold because we had been getting frustrated. We, you know, we, yeah. we had sold quite a few records, but there were no, nobody seemed to be stepping up to the plate. No one believed in us and wanted to help us get to the next level. And we very much wanted to do that. So when we started this live record, we put about a minute's worth of the crowd just screaming before we walked on stage. Hopefully your crowd? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it was, yeah, that's a good point. You know, it, was, it was from Budokan. It was from uh, Live at Budokan by Cheap Trick. No, no, it, no. Was, it, was, it was from that night. In fact, I think we went out on stage and even just, you know, gave them a little bit of encouragement. I'm gesturing with my arms right, right. now. But, you know, sort of said, hey, come on, make some noise. And, and they just went crazy. And so very purposely, that was the thing that we put first on the record so that any A&R person that was going to listen to it had to listen to a minute's worth of people going absolutely crazy. That's what they're looking for more than ever nowadays. Yeah, sure. Back then, too. 
So how did you build up to this point where you're selling 70,000 CDs and totally independently and headlining good venues around various markets? Yeah. yeah. I mean, was it just the connecting with songs that people were starting to sing or people singing your songs back to you and yes. you're just resonating? Yeah, it, it was, I know for a fact that it was the songs, you know, people, people took the songs into their hearts. wanted to sing them with us and we encourage them to do so and we still do to this day you know I go back to first time I saw Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden I love Billy Joel <laughs> yeah amazing he played Piano Man and we sang yeah. louder than he could so he stopped and he let us sing the song and I remember I had these nosebleed seats way up in the back and I thought you know this is the highest honor uh, for a songwriter to have thousands and thousands or whatever number of people singing your song back to you so loud that you can stop. And I do know that we were feeling that even back then, that people were, were taking these songs into their lives. And, uh, and it, was, it was a very good lesson for me. You know, it's, it's, in, it's interesting as a, yeah. someone who's creating songs, you want to make music that you think other people will react to and maybe take on board. But you also don't want to be calculated. You want to remain true as a writer to things that you believe in or songs that you can sing and you want to sing. So many times along the way, I've met people who are sick to death of their big hit or big hits. And yeah. I just don't relate to that because thankfully, I learned that lesson really on, really early on that if, if, if I was going to write a song and put a song on the record, it needed to be something that I was... 100% behind and that I could sing hundreds or thousands of times and and really look forward to it on the set list. Yeah. And thankfully I learned that early on. Yeah, that's great about musicians that we get to who is someone was talking about I was reading somewhere. Oh, Bob Lefsitz. Yeah, it, great. He's talking about if he writes a really good blog or something, that's it. It's gone forever. But musicians, if you write something good, you get to play that for decades. Yeah. Well, that's it, a so, really incredible thing. Yeah, and if, if as an aside, if you don't subscribe to Bob Lefsitz's letter, you really should. It's really easy to do it. I, I, I don't know what the address is, but if you just put into right. Google Bob Lefsitz, it's a great, it's incredible yeah. uh, sort of, you know, um, industry newsletter, and you'll learn a lot from it. So to absolutely subscribe to that. But uh, that thing about having songs that you can sing forever, ever and ever, amen. It's like it's it's the it's the other thing I think of is stand up, stand up comedians. They yeah. have jokes that they can tell for a finite period of time, and then they need to yeah. get new stuff. They're that, a little bit ahead of writers. They can do it for a couple of years, right? Right. Not just once. They can, yeah, 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 <laughs> they yeah. Do it maybe a hundred times. Yeah, and then they've got to retire got, yeah. it and yeah. and and get new stuff. And and we kind of have this thing as songwriters where we can kind of just play these songs, yeah. you know, if if we want to forever, you know, as long as we can sing them. Man, oh man. Yeah. That's true. And that's exactly what the record labels are looking for. This is back in an age where it still was getting signed was that was the ultimate goal because you could just get launched and they're hearing this crowd on your record and yeah. they're hearing people sing the lyrics back at you. Were you people fighting for your band at a certain point? Or? Yeah, there was a thing that, that, yeah, there were a couple different labels who kind of really stepped up and RCA ultimately was the one that we felt felt most comfortable with. So fortunately, we were in a position to uh, to make the decision to go with them over over another label that, that was also passionate for us. Now, did you do any... Any stories like you always hear these funny stories about bands trying to get their attention? Like obviously they're noticing you, but like 
Sugar Ray famously put their demo in a pizza box on the <laughs> top of the A&R guy's car or something. And, and um, uh, Yeah, that's so How great. did you get them, even with the strength of your songs, how did you get the industry to notice you when you're ready to get signed? Well, the ultimate the ultimate thing at the time, I think it was South by Southwest down in Austin. We, we played a gig there, and uh, a couple of the guys from RCA were there. And so I would say ultimately it was the, the strength of the band in a live situation and the songs. But I would even say at the time it was more about the band live than it was the songs because we very clearly needed to step up our songwriting and I needed to. So the original interest from, from that label came from that gig at South by Southwest. I lived in New York City at the time, so it was great because I could go up to their offices every week and bring new songs that I that I was writing and talk to our ANR guy and just sort of maintain a very um, close relationship. I remember actually, now that you're mentioning it, so we did South by Southwest. We, we met David Bendith and also Brian Maloof. Um, uh, who was another A&R guy there at the time. And then we had another gig in Washington, D.C., maybe three weeks later or something. And both Bob Jamison and Jack Rovner, who were the president and vice president, respectively, of RCA Records at the time, flew down. And we had the whole, you know, we basically we had the whole team there. And we had a great night. You know, we had a really, really... Uh, the Bayou was our home club in Washington, D.C., and we definitely had a lot of love in that room. And, and so it was the perfect night for them to come. Uh, and that yeah. was the night where they, they said, let's do this. And, and so then, you know, very quickly we signed a deal with stories. them. Yeah. Like it, my buddy's Funko Mungo, I remember in Oakland, guy from Island, I was telling you before the mics came on, mm -hmm. I wish I knew this executive's name, but he came, flew in to Oakland, California. They got every one of their homies together. Yeah. And they got signed to Island that night. Yeah. That's yeah. how, how it used to go with bands like you. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how it, I don't think it necessarily does work that way all the time now. And uh, I think the good thing about doing it that way for us was we very definitely had a lot of our ducks in a row. We were ready to sort of get shot out of the cannon. We weren't going to go out on a six, nine week tour and you know, I wasn't going to blow out my voice three three days in and then, you know, fold and need to go back home. Uh, we were, you know, very diligently working out on the road and, and that was just what we were doing. So it really didn't change much, you know. I'd say the biggest change was I had always wanted to be a little bit more of a rock band than the acoustic thing that we had started as. And so when we were getting the songs together to make everything you want, um, I kind of was pushing us to be maybe a bit more of a rock band. And I remember I wrote something like 80, to 80 or 90 tunes for that record. And fortunately, a, lo a lot of the big songs came at that time. I was living in the West Village uh, in New York City and, uh, you know, didn't, didn't really have really any money. I wasn't, I was able to live there and I was able to support myself, but sort of just barely. And there's, I think, a, you know, I don't know, there's a beauty to that that wears yeah. thin after a while, but there's also that sort of like, you know, devil may care. Like, I don't, you know, I got nothing to lose. So I'll scrape together what I need to. I'll continue to live here and basically just write songs and try to find that thing that maybe could help me get to the next level. How did the song, Everything You Want? That's funny, I had a song like that, but my song has not been that famous. <laughs> So, so many songs have the same titles. I have a song called Everything You Want. It has a little lick, and it just sounded like that's what it was saying. It's like... 
Sound like it was saying everything you want. It was instrumental. That's cool. I like that. Unlike that song, your song was maybe the most played song of 2000. It's yeah. like number one on a few different Billboard charts, including yeah. the Hot 100. Yeah. That album sold two million records. Crazy. And Just crazy. So that song, you know, as for, for all the sort of aspiring songwriters out there, for me, one of my one of my responsibilities as a songwriter is to always sort of be ready for the inspiration when it hits. So at the time, I had this little tape recorder that I would keep by the bed. You know, sometimes in the middle of the night, an idea would just come to you. And the worst thing you can do is say to yourself, well, I'll remember that in the morning and let it go away. And I do believe that these songs kind of come out of the ether. They sort of fly near you for a second. And if you're not going to be the one who catches them, they fly on somewhere else. He's everything you want. He's everything you need. He's everything inside of So I am, if, if nothing else, I am a very good catcher of ideas. Um, and so when anything ever happens to me, I'm always ready to mark it down, write it down in some way. I think of it, I do think of it as, as if I have this net and I'm just always ready to catch something that comes my way. I don't know if it was the, the absolute, the, the mantra, or the, you know, the guitar figure of the song. Um, I don't think it was this bit that... Um I think that part so actually cool. was, that was added during the um, when I was doing the demo for it. I had a, an old uh, Tascam eight-track uh, cassette. You know, this is all yeah, vintage talk that we're doing right now. But but yeah, that's so that's how I recorded my demos. And so I'm proud to say that that idea is on the demo. Um, it's very cool. Now, just watching you play that. Yeah. Was there any gating or anything going on in the final mix? So we did, um, there's a little bit of trickery going on because we flipped it around. So there's one track going forwards that basically without, without any yes. effects. I roll off the tone control almost all the way off on the bridge pickup. And I'm playing with my first finger and my middle finger on the E string and the B string always ringing out the E string and the, the pads of my fingers are um, just muting the notes out so it sounds a little bit more like a like a piano or I'm not sure but then if you yeah. add uh, like a little bit of reverb a little bit of delay and the always important phase 90 to this thing um, the other thing we did is so yeah the the, the 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 echoes that you're hearing there are kind of like going forward but if you listen to the record they kind of they go it's like a reverse reverb thing That song dragged you out of bed, though, right? Yeah, it did. It did, and I and I I just remember hearing the the uh, the 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 you know the verse change uh, on the. 
And, and just a melody for the verse, something came to my yeah. mind and, and I started just writing this stuff down, but you know what it was in fairness? I have to, I have to be totally honest. When the idea came to me, I thought, I'll just remember this tomorrow. I'm going to, I'm going right. to, this is, I, I, I'm not really, I'm tired. I don't want to write this right now. And then a little bit later, you know, 20 minutes later that you started with the, with the chords. And then, uh, and then I heard a vocal melody, uh, for the verse in my mind. Uh, and I and I I pushed that away, and then I, I rolled over and went back to sleep again for another twenty or thirty minutes. And I heard in my head, I swear to you, he's everything you want, he's everything you need, he's everything inside of you that you wish you could be. He says all the right things at exactly the right time, but he. heard that yeah i just heard it and i was and i and i knew okay this is like the biggest gimme of all time because some of those songs that i've been working on were taking me days or weeks to get together and this song just boom it was there and uh it's amazing how many great songs were written in like five or ten twenty minutes yeah yeah um and i'd say the biggest sort of shift on this song or the the moment i think where it all kind of really does come together is the moment at the end of the song and and um when i switch from the the he's everything you want the the pronoun he to the pronoun i um and it's sort of that's where the the reveal of like you know i'm the guy who really loves you and i'm the guy who you should be with but you you think of me as something other than than that and so when that when that came together i think that's when the song really really came really came into being and that was actually a while after but even without that i think it would have been a hit but that is definitely a a clever but you know by the that's three quarters of the way through the song you've yeah. already got everybody invested at that <laughs> point and then it's like a bonus thanks dude bonus tier <laughs> uh, there's certain songs i feel like you just man when you're in the studio you just know i mean you could be wrong but you're like i could be wrong but this is gonna hit yeah so, we definitely you, we definitely didn't feel that with everything you want i i know yeah. that i know we th- i know we thought it was good um i know we felt very proud of of the tones that we put on there. There's a univibe on there. Like I yeah. remember, just it was a you know it was a moment. There was a, there's a crazy octave fuzz thing. Um, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of kind of deep guitar nerd things that are kind of just flying under the radar in that song. Layers, um, yeah, which is cool. You know, it's nice yeah. to to on on a pop tune actually be able to stretch out a little bit as as a guitar nerd. Um, but when we made that, yeah, when we made that record, I don't think we did think it was a big. Certainly, I don't think we would have ever dared to have the hubris of thinking that that was a big hit. But you knew that was going to be a, one of the singles, right? But you chose. We we went out with "We Are" as the first tune, as more of a yeah. rock thing, and then we did then we did everything you want. And we are like I definitely heard that a whole bunch too. Oh, so cool! I don't know if I, you know, I must have heard it a few months before. Yeah, that would have been a few months before. Yeah, that was all over the place. Yeah, that one that one did well for us too. I mean, it was. I think it was nice because it sort of established us yeah. as a uh, a band that could rock. Um, you know, that was important to us and to and to me. Uh, coming from the sort of a little bit more acoustic world, I think it was nice to to be able to do that. That's the one you'd sneak in some comfortably numb. 
Oh or, yeah, back in the day, we on, <laughs> and we are. I yeah. think I saw a clip of you and Steve Feckety. Oh, Steve Feckety's great. He's a great player, man. Great player, incredible singer, and such a great guy. You know, it's yeah. interesting. We talk about things. Uh, how do we do this? How do we? How do we live a life where we get to play music for a living? And one of the biggest keys to this in my experience has been being a nice guy that people want to be around. You know, when you've got, you know, when you're on your second delay of the day at an airport and you're going to be nine hours late for the gig and you wanted to just go to bed in a hotel room somewhere, but instead you're eating some bad food at some place. You know, the guys you have around you are the people that can lift you up or they're the people that can bring you down. And very often we, we do a lot of that ourselves too. Like I bring my myself down as much as anything, but I'm trying at every step to sort of be, you know, be better than that, be better than my worst um, version of myself. So when you're surrounding yourself with people like a guy like Steve Feckety, who's just this kind of ebullient, joyous kind of guy, it makes everything easier. And obviously being a good musician, being a good guitar player and a good, a good singer is hugely important, but, but I'd take a, a less talented uh, musician and a better guy every single day of the week. You know, not that Steve is not oh, no, super he's top amazing. notch. He's so versatile yeah. too. Like when he picks up, I was, I did a gig with him just yep. to give him some props here. Oh yeah. At this year's NAM show at the Yost theater, Steve for soundcheck live production. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. And he's one of those rare players. Like when he picks up a telly, he's playing telly. Oh yeah. When he picks up like a hollow body, he's when he picks up a Les Paul, like he yeah. really can adjust or a strat. Yep. He really adjusts to those different instruments. Yeah, he really, really. does. He makes them sound... He, he channels the appropriate energy to the appropriate instrument. He's absolutely yeah. invested in it. And really, he's wonderful. So he, he tours play. a lot with you? or Yeah, he's sort of in and out. We also play with a guy... Uh, a guy named Donovan White plays with us a little bit more right now. Um, but you know, one oh, of cool. the things that's been great for me... And Donovan's from Kansas City, an amazing guitar player. Another one of those guys that just... You just, you just want to have him in the room because he's so fun to be around you know it's been a great thing for me i used to be so precious about my songs and everything had to be done a certain way i think i was a bit of a tyrant at at times because of that and uh so i was super precious and if if someone else was coming in and bringing their own sort of flavor to something i was suspicious and resistant and you know it was it came from a place of of insecurity inside of me right but it's been so liberating and and so fantastic for me to play with all these other great players who bring their own personality to these songs that you know uh so now i kind of relish the opportunity to play with different people and we and we do it a fair bit you know we we sort of have you know great players and and if someone's out you know doing something else then we've got another friend that that can come out and play with us you know it's good it's a lot of fun that's killer man so anyway yeah back to 2000 so things must have just started blowing up in a hurry when when everything you want hit and yeah it did. what was the uh you talk about being shot out of a cannon. What yeah. was that like for you guys? Well, you know, I, I definitely didn't take the time to stop and smell the roses. You know, it, I wouldn't say I have any regrets from that time, but one of the things that is kind of difficult looking back on mm-hmm. it is we were so, we were just on the treadmill trying to get to the next obligation that could keep this thing moving forward. And I, I think, it, I don't know if it still holds this record, but for a while, I believe everything you want held this sort of dubious record of taking the longest time to get to number one. Um, it was on the charts for the longest period of time. 
So it was something just like that. Climbing, huh? Yeah, <laughs> just kind of yeah, the, the little engine that could. But so on the one hand, that's a drag. But on the other hand, it's actually great because the song is sort of just it's out there. It's sort of uh, uh, becoming again. I, I say this a lot, but it becomes part of people's lives and becomes part of people's stories. They have experiences with this song in the background, and so because it took a while, I think it really kind of cemented itself uh, as. Uh, if not an evergreen song, then certainly a song that people still, at least in 2018, are not tired of hearing. And and that's, to yeah. me, an incredible honor. You know, yeah. I, when I when I wrote the song in my you know apartment in New York, I certainly wasn't ever thinking that it would be something that would connect and, and still uh, be with us till this day. So you guys must have started like doing some fat tours and did yep. you team up with any huge bands and, or anything? Yeah, any we memorable? played, we did a tour with Bare Naked Ladies, which was an awful lot of fun. That was the most fun I think I've ever had on tour. They're just a great organization, really, really good people. We did a lot of really huge radio shows where the lineups were just insane. I remember yeah. playing a gig out the Chicago Speedway um, where Metallica was the headliner. And we were, I want to say, we were the first band of the day. So, you know, we played at 10 a.m. and Metallica was going to play at 10 p.m. But still, we were we played at a gig yeah. with Metallica, you know, separated by 12 hours. But, man, and it was so amazing because when we got on that stage, you know, of course, we play these, you know, they're rock songs, but they're not heavy songs. You know, you see all these dudes in Metallica shirts with their arms crossed, and they, you know, of course, they got there at four a.m., so they're <laughs> yeah. they're already pissed that they've been, you know, waiting mm. for six hours. And we come up on stage, and we're, you know, playing our, our you know, singer songwriter rock tunes, and it just crossed arms. But their girlfriends were singing, yeah. and I remember thinking, well, there's something <laughs> nice. there. You know what I mean? Like they for the, the win, yeah. And so, and by the end of our set, I do remember that that some of those guys who were the most sort of hardened and you know not going to give us an inch, uh, you know, had softened and we're you know, at least having fun, you know. But that was one of the biggest, biggest shows. I remember meeting James Hetfield and just sort of, and Jason Newstead, uh, you know. Yeah. It, those were, that was a big day, you know. We did a lot of a those, lot of fun yeah. shows. Red, we played Redskins Stadium. At least uh, you were on that show. At least you weren't Coldplay opening for Limp Biscuit. Oh, wow. I interviewed Johnny Buckland from Coldplay. Wow, I love his playing. Yeah, that, another they, great they band. Had one of the best sounds I've ever seen at a live show. Amazing. But yeah, he was describing opening a tour for Limp Biscuit and just getting shit thrown at them every day. Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah, that seems that so, seems an awkward lineup right there. Yeah, they th- those radio kind of things and those festivals throw throw some interesting combinations. Yeah. Really loud crowds. So you get all those teenagers screaming and stuff. Yeah. Like it's a piercing sound. I've never played one, but I've been on the side of the stage. Sure. Like when my friends have played, I'm like third eye blind or whatever. Yeah. So uh, we were, you were saying you did some other stuff, Redskins well, Stadium. Well, yeah, we played Redskins Stadium and Stone Temple Pilots were, if not the headliner, they were one of the, you know, one of the bands way further up in the bill and i remember seeing you know scott wyland just being this kind of masterful front man there have been experiences like that along the way where you kind of realize the you know there are people out there who are incredibly special you know gwen stefani was another person i saw when you know when i saw um i saw no doubt play um we didn't play with them but when i saw them, them play she was another person similar to scott in a way that that she just completely commanded the moment she just effortlessly owned 
that space. Freddie Mercury's, you know, another person that comes to right. mind. You know, she, she was, she's at that level. And uh, so I was, you know, always trying to learn how to be a better frontman because that's, there, there's this conflict because I, if left to my own devices, I'll sit with my pedal board and tweak on knobs all day long. But that's not my job. My, right. my job is to sing songs and, and try to engage with the people who come to see us play. So both of those jobs are really difficult, you know? And so I, I try to find that balance. And it's a fascinating journey, you know, because I, I just want to keep getting better at what I do. But yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a reluctant front man <laughs> who's realized that that's, that's where... Yeah, you know, that that's the reason I'm here is because I've been able to try to 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 um, encourage that side of me, you know. Hey, it's it's a, it's tough to front when you're playing a lot of the main guitar and singing all the vocals, and yeah, you got this guitar on all the time. I mean, it's not. Well, it's actually easier not to interrupt you, yeah. but it, to me, it's my armor. Like my guitar yeah. actually protects me from feeling completely uh, out of place. You know, I saw uh, Depeche Mode play a few times over the past couple of years, and Dave Gahan is another one of those guys who just is is uh, is one of the all-time great front men. Um, and I, he's just so at ease with his 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 body on stage you know with a microphone stand and nothing else uh his posture you know he's just so graceful up there and you're trying to learn yeah. from him you know what i mean it's sing a little bit for us again yeah sure maybe how about a uh, true illusion that we were talking about earlier oh yeah yeah that song um, is so beautiful so this will be the the first time i will have ever sung this song since I tracked it. Really? Yep. Because we've never I, played I a lot. you got some shows coming up starting in May or... Yeah. And I'm just noodling shamelessly. Please do. Such a beautiful song, man. I just love oh, it. Oh, thanks, man. dreams the serenade of the frozen city this restless noise like a desperate hope tell me stories show me wonder wrapped in the light of the everlasting hour like falling snowflakes Fading sunlight We are alive We are alive When it's a melody This melody Nice, dude
crafty minor thing. Come on. Oh yeah, it goes twice as long. Yeah. And is it minor on the E? Yeah. Yes, it is minor. I know your shit. You know. <laughs> but it's just I'm just making a joke. It's, it's just so funny to me when the artist is like, how does my song I've go? never played it. You know, I, 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 I wrote it, but I've never just casually played it. Man, that sounds so great. You... Dude, I just love that tune, man. Just, oh, thanks, man. Just, I'm a huge fan of that key too. Like, yeah. I have this jam I'm about to record. I wouldn't normally play it, but I think you might like this. Like, I just said, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
I'm Dude, so, <laughs> just, I love that. Oh, thank you. I'm just like, I'm obsessed with open strings. Yes. I swear to God. That's like the more I play. Yes, open strings are your friend. They They're, ring. They ring, man. Let them ring. Anyway, the layers on those tunes and all your tunes are just phenomenal. The way oh, they, thank you. The yeah. way they build. Well, you know, I, I think at times I've been guilty of overdoing it, but I do love the process of overdubs. I love, you know, having a little guitar orchestra. Um, you know, I, I, I draw heavily on on my influences from The Edge and, you know, guys, you know, guys like that or, or, or you know, uh, Martin Gore from Depeche Mode, these dudes who, who can say a lot with a, with a little. Um, and when you add a bunch of tracks together with single note lines all sort of interweaving together, it can be just a really special thing that yeah. maybe you wouldn't be able to or at least I wouldn't be able to play all in one track. You know, it's a. Uh, it's nice to approach the guitar that that way. Let it be almost more of an or- orchestral instrument. Yeah, jangle. Yeah, jangle. So nowadays, when you're playing live, are you running stereo or you got? Obviously, you have the piezo pickup going. Yeah. Separately for the acoustic sound coming out of your PRS. Yep. But what about for the electrotone? It's sort of ironic that that we were talking earlier about how much we love a stereo thing, but in the context of a live situation, I I've always stuck with a mono uh, a mono cabinet. As much as I've been tempted to sort of build it out into a wet dry thing or something, it just, you know, I think it can be more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, if I think you're not you might the be. edge. Yeah, I'm not the edge exactly. I mean, if yeah. one is not the, if a person is not the edge, you don't have like. Yeah, yeah, we're a team we're of 500 we're, engineers. Right, we're sort of a little bit more throw and go in the way that we need to make this stuff work. So I think one yeah. mic on one cabinet, uh, and and that way I'm kind of in control of the blends of what's what's happening. Yeah. It would be fun, and on the few gigs that where I've used a, a Helix live instead of using an amplifier at all yeah. it's very nice and so easy you know you just yeah. plug two xlrs in there and then you've got this cool stereo spread and i do really love that but i'm fine with just with just you know a mono thing it winds up reverberating and sort of spreading throughout the room anyways well you that's know? the thing and some great guitar player pointed that out they were talking about how i wish i could remember somebody if they know is it like Billy Gibbons or somebody was saying how mono records sound great because you get the sound of the room if you're having oh, yeah. you're actually hearing in stereo anyway yeah because of the sound of your house oh that's an interesting point if you put the stereo in the right corner yeah yeah and yeah it yeah ultimately ends up sounding and you're probably talking about classic records and stuff but yeah no that's interesting but it certainly does happen you know when you get yeah. into a venue all the different you know reverberations the echoes are happening in different times and frequencies can get into your ear in a happy way so i'm fine with that you know it's interesting though because i go see i'm a huge mike landau fan and and when i go see him play very often he's got some sort of a a wet dry two amp thing going on and 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 of course he's mike landau so (laughs) you know let's start there but but his tone i mean he's always been someone who's 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 deeply inspired me as a player um but i love you know i love going to see him play for that very reason and i think part of that too is you go see him play at the baked potato for yeah. for instance you know you're there you're 10 feet away from these two amps i mean it doesn't get more immediate you know it's to me that's like going to church you know it, me too man i saw him and i've seen him a Two or three times now in LA since I moved here, yep. which is one of the great perks to be able to see a guy like Landau. Oh, that was the first time I really felt like a Grateful Dead sort of like deadhead thing where I was oh, yeah. like, 
I just want to go see this guy three nights in a row, and every night's going to be different, and yep. I, I just want to follow him around, just watch like a absolutely fan. Totally, hundred percent. In fact, one of the reasons I've kind of gotten away from playing Strat style guitars is because I was just so obsessed with his playing and I was wanting to sound like Mike instead of sounding like myself. And so by spending more time with with, with Gibson style, you know, dual humbucker guitars, I've, I, mean, I, I let's, let's just be very clear. I don't think I ever could sound like, like Mike Landau, but I was chasing that thing, you know? And I think ultimately yeah. I'm better served to find my own voice as a player. And so uh, over the years now, I've been doing a little less of that Strat thing and a little bit more of the dual humbucker thing, largely, you know, because of that. Although I have heard him play on an SG and a, and a gold top and he still sounds like himself and he crushes it. But um, it was an interesting thing to be going down that rabbit hole at all yeah. times and wanting to sort of say, hey, hold on, like, don't lose yourself, you know? That is interesting, yeah. But that, when you say that deadhead yeah. kind of thing, I mean, he <laughs> inspires that kind of... His playing is so good that it kind of can almost take you by the hand and be like, okay, this is what you should... You, you should only try to do this now. And Mike is someone who is so, he's so humble and he would actually never feel that way as a, as a guy. He would say, yeah. no, f- please find your own thing. I remember talking to him years ago about, about uh, Nirvana and he was like, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened. And it was, I was so fascinated that, that he, you know, this guy who, who, you know, tales from the bulge, like... You know, this crazy deep stuff that he knows and that he can just play effortlessly, that he would be so into this kind of like more rootsy and, 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 you know, rock that's built less on technique, you know. But then, of course, you realize how much of a Hendrix fan he is and, you know, you know, so he definitely knows how to love music that just comes from the gut, you know. Um, yeah. But he's he's just a master. I love his playing. He's a sorcerer. He he's, is. He's a he's a Gandalf. Yeah, he's a Gandalf. He's a Dumbledore. <laughs> so, man, when you're looking back on the huge success of everything you want, which was your first breakout thing, and obviously you guys had well, first of all, obviously you're not a dumb dude. <laughs> Second of all, you guys already had a lot of experience in the industry, but that was your first big record. Is there anything on the business end? that you look back on in terms of agreements that you signed or anything that you would have done differently if you could talk to your self that was right there in the moment back then or yeah i mean that's a really good question i think i think i would um so so nowadays i think it's all about owning your masters so my experience is if someone is offering you a lot of money for to own the masters that you're creating then it, it, it might be worth doing. But if it's but if it's some if it's anything less than like rolling your eyes and jumping up and down and singing, <laughs> you know, victory songs, I don't think you should do it. I, I think it's, you know, streaming income is way up. Well way up. It's up. Uh right. it's it's especially up if you own the material. Uh, if you're if you're paying if you're if, if a record company is paying you to to, you know, your sort of stipend out of uh uh you know, for master usage or whatever. I just think your pie is just that much smaller. So I think... A lot of times significantly smaller. A lot smaller, yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's not much of a pie. It's more of like one pecan out of the right. pecan pie. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I think as much as we can now, we need to kind of empower ourselves. And, and you know, these things that we're creating 
they can they can um, you know enable us to live a comfortable life if the circumstances are right. And if you kind of give that away for anything less than a lot, whatever that might be for your definition. Um, I don't know. I just don't see it as that compelling a thing to do. So, so I would I would encourage people hold on to your to your masters. Um, you know, try as best as you can to get them out there out there and perpetuate them. Um, but then, if you have something that that happens, you know, they get placed in an ad or whatever. Someone sort of you know hears it and starts streaming it on their YouTube channel and while they're dancing around with their dog and it goes viral and then wow, look at us, you know, we've got this income coming in. So I think that's something um, for me as a, someone who's, you know, my, one of my biggest lessons has been uh, to try to become a better singer. And I know we're on Mm. probably the preeminent guitar podcast (laughs) here from the preeminent guitar magazine. But I, I would encourage everybody who's doing this as a thing and they're trying to, get gigs trying to 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 uh, learn how to be a journeyman musician in any way shape or form learn how to sing because if you can sing and you come to the table as that as with that as a skill set you are so much more attractive to anybody who's going out there on the road and needs some help yeah. the other thing that i always say is like just be nice like say say please and thank you you know um i'm i'm amazed i am st- Stunned at how many people don't do that. Um, when when the monitor engineer you know hooks you up and gives you a good monitor mix, let him know that it meant a lot to you. That it made your gig. And I, I, I'm astonished at how many people just just for some reason act like they're kind of entitled to these things. We are not entitled to anything. We want to play guitar for a living. We are not entitled to. Um, and anybody who acts like they are has strikes against them. You want people to root for you. You know what I mean? And that includes everybody, like the guy who opened the door to help you load in your gear to the last fan to leave at the end of the night. Like, don't forget that. Like, that's huge, huge. Preach it. Yeah, Yeah, man. But I just think as a blanket thing, like it just goes across, it's across the board, you know, the companies that support you and like along those lines, can I just for a second, you know, GHS strings have been there for me. They're the first set of strings I ever bought along the lines of saying thank you. When I was a kid, I went to EU Wurlitzer Music in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I bought a set of boomers. And, and, you know, when I was... 14 years old or whatever it was and I had my Kramer Pacer Deluxe you know and 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 I was rocking out with a set of boomers and you know they've been with me for all this time anyways but yeah so I just want to say thank you to them but, but and there are so many companies that have been so great to me with the list is so is so long but um, but yeah as a way of living your life being in gratitude um, from the as much as you can from the moment that you rise to the moment that you lay down man you know be be thankful for for what you've been given and even if it's just a guitar with six strings on it you are ahead of the game a lot of people would love to have that you know oh i always feel that way every time i play a gig it's like man i got to play a gig yeah i don't care what kind of gig it is we get to really play for people and people watch it's just amazing totally. thing. and i love like when you post those yeah. pictures from from the drum kit looking back on the, at the audience and i love you know you, you've got the band up there everybody in the band is sort of recognizing it seems to me like they really recognize like this is beautiful right we're in a we're in a beautiful place and the other night i think there was you were in michigan or something like yeah that, yeah right? jackson michigan crazy like everybody in the audience going crazy having a great time like as much as we can be spreading joy even in the smallest yeah. way you know uh, man 
it just makes our day better. It makes everybody's day better. And that guy who's who's the monitor engineer, that guy who guy who helped you load in, the highlight of his yeah. day might be the fact that you said thank you, you know? Man, it's true. It's the little things, man. Yeah. Speaking of thank yous, we got to thank Matt Blackett, my dude, made a guitar player magazine, and he does so many other things nowadays too. But yeah, he's he's been just, you know, obviously he's written about you many, many times. And yeah, yeah, Matt he, is. He hooked uh, this up today. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I mean, I, yeah. I'm so glad to meet you. And obviously, Matt's one oh, of likewise. my favorite people in the world. And yeah, great writer. Hilarious. Dude. Yeah. Oh, I mean, on I'm on the floor every time I talk to him. I I literally like he's so funny, and when I read his emails or his texts, he's such a great writer that his comedy yeah. is even better. Oh yeah, the true. jokes are just brilliant. So yeah. Yeah. What did I call? I called him once. Like this is Matt Black, and I can't come to the phone right now. You can leave a message, or you can just hang up. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> or he's like. He's like, yeah, I'm Matt, M-A-T-T. The second T is silent. He's, he's yeah, he's he's character, but really good writer. Taught me a lot, and great guitar player, great totally. musician, composer. Fucking Matt Blackett. Yeah, Matt Blackett. Thank you, sir. He also kind of introduced me to Mitch Perry, who's on a recent oh, yeah. podcast. But yeah. I've you also got to know Mitch from playing at the whiskey. But yeah. Oh, cool. So now you're such a guitar player, but this new record definitely. Is uh, got a lot of uh, trippy uh, synth elements to it. Yeah, a lot of keyboards and on this record. It's sort of a love letter to you know those Depeche Mode records and, and New Order records and um, the Cure. You know those records that I I didn't really necessarily acknowledge as an influence in in Vertical Horizons music too much before. Um, and but also like bands like Death Cab for Cutie. You know where there there are these and Coldplay too, where there are these kind of clean guitar parts that that don't have to be, you know, like... You know, you don't have to just be a rock guy at all times. Like, sometimes yeah. it's better to... You know, stuff yeah, that's... Yeah, I love it. Just a little bit more whimsical, I like guess. Like those eighth notes in the first song, I'm Gonna Save You. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Oh, thanks. things i have to mention because this is a guitar podcast one of my yeah. absolute secret weapons which is not so secret um is the boss vb2 vibrato i learned about it from michael thompson you know the session legend and amazing guitar incredible yeah, yeah. guitar player and a wonderfully sweet guy also from landau and i use it an awful lot when i'm when i'm working on records so um like uh So if you just have a simple part like that, in fact, I'll take the, no, yeah. we'll take the delay off just for a second. Take the reverb off. But if you add this vibrato, wow! and then if you add the delay to that, and reverb, I'll just take the, VB2 off. 
See how it gets so much smaller? Yeah. When you add it back in. That's awesome. Um, so I use the VB2 all the time. I set I set the the rate kind of high, the depth kind of low, and it just if you're if you're playing it on its own, it almost sounds yeah. it almost sounds like someone's just like someone yeah. else is helping you play the Bigsby. Right, right, right. Yeah. And and it's uh, to me it's been uh, such a help to make simple parts speak out a little bit more clearly in a mix. I love the little piano motif on Out of the Blue, and then you turn that into a vocal thing. Got some dotted eighth echoes happening there at the end. The fires begin to fade. What do you want to play, man? Um, let's play uh, something. Thanks for the bridge. Thank you. 
That sounds great. Do that again. <laughs> what? The vibrato and the harmonics? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's killer, man. <laughs> Matt, you were the man. Thanks so much for uh, hanging out today. Dude, thank you for having me, man. The birds are chirping outside. This, birds. Is, this, this is a good day. Yeah, it's a great day. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I think you're great, and it's oh, a, thank you. a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. I yeah, know we're, um, we're supposed to wrap up here, but what about, you were talking about how you sing these songs for people or for darkness or light, and I'll put it all together. A song for someone is so beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so, so that tune, I wrote that song. We do a lot of shows for the troops around the world. And uh, the first time we went to Iraq, I saw a soldier. She couldn't have been more than five feet tall. Her gear probably weighed more than she did. And when she put on her stuff and was getting ready to go to work, she walked out into 132 degree weather Man. with her helmet and her goggles and her her you know vest and her M4, her backpack, her her, you know, her body armor, her boots. And she w- walked through this like it was nothing. And, and I had been in the country for maybe a day and I thought I was going to die. I couldn't imagine how I was going to make it through the next week or so of shows. And she was so inspiring to me that I, I, I thought, man, when I get home, I want to write a song for her. And then I realized if I wrote a song for her, I also needed to write a song for her friends and family back home, the people that love her. And then it sort of grew because there was a soldier standing next to her that I also wanted to include and then his friends and family. And it became this song that was sort of for everybody, you know? Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's where this, this tune came from. Love that tune. Yeah, thanks, Maybe man. you could take us out on that yeah. tune. What do you think? Should I, should I try filming a little bit? Sure. See what we get. Yeah? Yeah. And this is a song for someone on is a song to play when they are gone To help you slow down a bit Now that the day is done This is a song for someone And this is a song for someone wide awake And this is a song to give a little break Slow down a bit Now that the day is done And this is a song for someone Someone who laughs Someone who cries Someone whose heart beats Just like mine Another soul Whose soldiers Someone looking back For something good That someone said you lack May it make you whole again If only while it runs This is a song for someone Someone who laughs Someone who